happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 294 on May 17th, 2023. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is the state virtual school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, located right here in kind of smoky Missoula, Montana. We've had uh, some beautiful weather here in the last week, but fires from Canada in British Columbia and Alberta have been sending some smoke our way. And about four hours ago, the kind of smoke rolled into the, the valley, and oh. I don't know when it's going to go away. So it's awfully early for Western Montana to see smoke. Usually we would see it late in the season, um, but extremely serious wildfires uh, going on in Western Canada. And, and of course, we send our best both to the brave firefighters that are fighting those those battles and also to the people of those two provinces um, as they deal with the aftermath. Uh, but that's not what this is about. Uh, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. Um, how are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I'm, I'm good. And I guess I, I haven't worn my Hawaiian, Hawaiian shirt for, uh, for the episode. So as we were going on, I, I checked to see if, if Jason had anything to share that uh, he didn't want documented forever by the AI, which is listening. So that does feel a little bit weird, doesn't it? Oh my gosh! Yep, absolutely true. Well, um, oh, and, and I'll I'll say I uh, am the uh, middle school innovation and STEM teacher at Providence Day School here in lovely Charlotte, North Carolina, where we are wrapping up with the last uh, you know week and a half of school. And next Friday is actually our last day of classes, and it's been a, a great year. I've really enjoyed it. This is the best job that I've ever had. Um, no uh, job involving people is ever free of politics and, uh, you know, sometimes drama and things like that. But hey, I'm, uh, I'm on a 10-month contract teaching uh, middle schoolers about media literacy, coding and robotics, and engineering. So that's, uh, that's what I get paid to do, and it's a pretty good gig. So I'm looking forward to the summer, however. And um, going to be coming up to your neck of the woods, not quite Missoula, but to Seattle, the first weekend, the, at the, the first weekend, basically of, uh, of uh, June for um, a workshop about how fin Finland has been doing media literacy sponsored oh, by the university of Washington. So pretty excited about that. Well, Dr. Fryer, I believe we have an agenda for tonight. Uh, we were at the Ethics Situation Room. It's a once-week podcast where we try to take the headlines uh, in technology and kind of shoot them through the prism of education, hopefully to help provide some insight to teachers, tech directors, administrators, those interested in education on how educational technology might be used best or how to make sure that it is a value add it's like, oh, on the podcast. That's not a very good sign. Um, uh, uh, value add for students and not a distraction. And tonight, um, our categories include the ever expanding AI category. I'll admit I'm getting a little tired of talking about it, and yet it keeps marching on as it evolves and takes on new nuances. Um, privacy, uh, security news, uh, some social media news, some Google news, some Apple news, and then finally we will share our geeks of the week. Um, Dr. Fryer, you have collected a series of links for us uh, tonight. Uh, is there anything you'd like to start on tonight before uh, we jump into the the AI um, rabbit hole? Oh, sure. Let's. Uh, I, th I think we probably should jump a little bit sooner than we have sometimes. It seems like uh, lately maybe we've like 15 minutes to go and let's jump into it. Uh, so I, I vote we, we jump in a little bit quicker. Can I? Okay. 
I do have I'll, I have an AI coding story to tell, but I'll I'll wait on that. <laughs> Again, we're gonna jump into AI right away. Um, oh, and that links to AI too. Um, let's do some <laughs> let's let's do some security news. So uh, we've talked on the show about the importance of keeping your smart home devices updated, keeping all of your devices updated, really. Um, and uh, you know, part of the reason for that is you don't want them to be hacked and. This sounds crazy to say, but this is real. You don't want them to become part of a zombie botnet, <laughs> which is a collection of hacked devices that can participate in denial of service attacks from thousands or millions of computers. And we've talked on the show in, in the past about some of those. Well, this is an Ars Technica article from yesterday on May 16th. Wemo won't fix smart plug vulnerability, allowing for remote operation. Um, and so if you give too long of a name to your Wemo smart plug, then it makes it vulnerable to uh, buffer overflows, injections. And while the company could put out firmware that would update it, this is an end of life device. Eh, so they're not. Um, so I guess this speaks to number one, the importance of investing in some brands that you believe in that are going to be committed to security, but also just how important it is to stay up to date on the different devices that you do have in your home. And I will admit that I have uh, some different smart plugs and uh, devices that are all Google Home compatible, but I haven't been monitoring those. So I think I told the story on the show a long time ago about needing to update the firmware and a light switch, which I don't have anymore. We left those at our old house but it was just going to be in Chinese. It wasn't in English. I couldn't even you know, verify what it was. So anyway, um, probably all of us need to be monitoring the brands and the items that we have, uh, installing firmware updates if they're available. But if you happen to have a Wemo plug of this generation, uh, which the article talks about exactly which version it is, um, might be time to make sure you just don't have too long of a name because then it could be hacked. Well, and what's interesting about that, so I have some Wemo plugs in my house, and they look just like that. So I, and I was just looking on my app to see if, if any of these are active in my house right now, and they're not. But that that's that's really challenging from the standpoint of, well, first of all, I didn't know that Kevin Purdy was now writing for Ars Technica. That's great to see. But the, um, the thing that's really challenging about this to me is that Wemo is an established brand name in this Internet of Things space, right? They've been around for a long time. Um, and I would say that I would call them a trusted brand here, right? And the part about this that I think is is a little bizarre is that, I mean, again, you're not paying very much for these devices. I would guess that that I probably paid $15, $20, maybe $25 for a Wemo smart plug back in the day. Um, and, you know, you do have to ask yourself the value proposition for something, you know, sold for 15 bucks. Um, you know, should you expect a lifetime worth of, of updates? And, and I'm not sure the answer to that is, is, is yes. So that that's challenging to me from that standpoint. But of course, the problem with this is, is that if you're talking about a hardware that's relatively modest and it works the way it was designed, you know, I think a company has an obligation to either a tell you or, or uh, tell you ahead of time, they're going to only update the firmware for this amount of time and then be done. Um, or B, continue to update it when it's practical to do so. And that that's that I think that's bad news for a company like Wemo to do that. Uh, and the other thing that I don't know the answer to is that, again, I have, I was just looking at my devices on my Wemo app, and it looks like I have five 
that look like this, but since none of them are plugged in right now, I can't tell which edition they are. This is the, the version two of the Wemo plug, if I read the article correctly. Um, yeah, the Wemo mini smart plug version two um, is is the, the piece there that that uh, is has security issues. Um, um, and I, that's... I would tell you I update pretty regularly. And the fact that I have a couple of these running around my house um, just, I think, tells you that that there should be some expectation here that um, you're utilizing or that you're getting these devices updated. But also, where is Wemo in telling me this, right? Like, I, I, you know, I, I, I was logged into the app. I wasn't logged out of it. I got into the app. I see I have five of these. Maybe I don't have the version twos here. So that's something that, that, that could obviously be concerning. But it feels like they know who I am, right? Because I'm logging into an account here. Send me a notification or something about this. Um, and it looks like that this has been a long time issue. Um, but um, I am disappointed to see that this is the case. So I think it, it definitely points to the need for us to, to monitor um, the devices. We also might need to reset our expectations for just how long we're going to keep something, right? Yeah. I mean, when we left Oklahoma, we've been married almost 26 years. <laughs> like we'd had the same weed eater that someone gave to us for our wedding and it was, it was still working, but you know, I just, th there's some things that you get, you know, rakes, other tools, like, I'm not going to get a new one. I mean, I'm just going to keep using it. I don't have to upgrade it. Well, when it comes to, to technologies like smart home devices, I think our, our mindset needs to change. Um, you know, even like, a, I don't know, with television, some, some of these kind of things like that, the standards change. But I think that this is probably an important, in addition to thinking about the ecosystem that you're buying into and the degree to which you trust that ecosystem, just because it, quote, works with, with Google or, 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 you know, works with Madame A, that doesn't necessarily give you all the information that you need. And so yeah. I think part of what we probably need to do as uh, internet of home, smart home um, <laughs> cobblers, I don't know what you'd say, you know, trying to put these <laughs> things together uh, is to have an expectation that you're not going to keep it forever. It's going to, it's going to end of life at some point. And sometimes the standards are going to do that. I think matter is the new internet of things standard that new devices are going to support. And that's going to help with interoperability and yada, yada, yada. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's a cautionary tale. And while one device or, or even several devices in your house are not going to probably result in, in this case, like identity theft and, and your, I, you know, major trauma in your, in your life, if these devices become part of a botnet, you know, writ large, this is a problem in society when devices don't have updating firmware, they can be exploited. And that article, I think, talks about, well, no, it's another one. That 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 the other Ars Technica article. Well, maybe I'll talk about that one too. Oh, let me do that one real quick. Uh, sure. So, so this was also from yesterday, um, from Ars Technica. Malware. Now that I click on, it's not opening. Turns home routers into proxies for Chinese state-sponsored hackers. Uh, so very similar, although it's not a smart plug. And um, security, uh, you know, researchers um, have figured out that. Um, there's a backdoor uh, in certain routers that is going to, uh, you know, allow, um, you know, hackers to take them over and to do what they want. And this is even more serious when it comes to your router, because if somebody's compromised that, they can intercept all the traffic that you are, you know, passing and both sending and receiving online. And so that's, that's a really big deal. Um, but again, we've, I don't know, we've talked about it in a while, but 
the computing environment is so hostile. It is crazy how hostile yeah. it is. And the researchers um, have traced this to uh, a Chinese group that uh, they identify known as Fancy Bear. Oh, no, sorry. This is a Kremlin-backed group, APT28, also known as Fancy Bear. And it was found to be infecting more than half a million networking devices made by Linksys, Mitrock, Netgear, TP-Link, and QNAP. So when it comes to Internet of Things, when it comes to routers, I definitely believe it's not always the best idea to just get the cheapest because you may be getting the worst security. And I would say that thinking about the home router that you select and the updates to that, that is a really key piece of hardware. And you think how much of our lives rides on the internet. And if you're just buying the cheapest router that you can, you know, that, that could, that could result in some serious consequences for you. So consider that. And if you haven't updated your router in a while, definitely keep your firmware updated. Uh, and, you know, I would consider investing in a more sophisticated Wi-Fi router than the cheapest one you can get. Yeah, and, and something that I think it's worth mentioning, right? Like, what what harm could a little Internet of Things device do? Um, and and you need to remember when when, when thinking about this that um, it's a little computer, right? Like, it may not present that way, but it's a little computer, and there is a whole um, uh, community around hacking things onto smaller devices to make them run as as more powerful pieces. Uh, you may have seen memes and references to, to whether or not a, an Internet of Things device can play Doom, for example. That's one of the classic examples of people will take anything with a screen on it and try to put Doom the game. Didn't somebody do that on a John Deere tractor? That was yeah. one of the things oh, yeah. they, were, they were hacking to, you know, get the John Deere to play Doom. And if you haven't, you know, done a Google search uh, uh, regarding um, uh, uh, a hacked firmware in a car, I mean, it's another really good example of this, right? Like that um, there's a computer sitting in every modern uh, uh, recently sold car. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of lucky that they're starting to standardize on a couple of pieces of software here, whether it's a, um, a CarPlay from, from Apple or Android Auto from the folks at Google. Um, but the bottom line is that's a pretty capable computer there too. And just as as as, as Wes noted, um, there is uh, the possibility to turn it into a negative actor pretty quickly. And I remember twenty years ago um, buying old uh, you know Linksys router wireless well, twenty years ago, ten years ago buying Linksys routers and updating the firmware on there, and you could turn uh, a Linksys an old blue Linksys router into a pretty capable server. That's right. I said server, right? Because you could do things um, on your network that you provide some pretty extraordinary functionality. So, um, you know, every time you add one of these IoT devices, if you add 10 smart plugs to your, your device, or I'm sorry, to your network, you're actually adding 10 computers to your network. And if they're not being updated or um, if they somehow get hacked, then you become part of a grander problem. So, you know, we, we've talked a lot about security. Uh, we understand this is confusing. I know I provide a lot of family tech support uh, to members of my family. And over the weekend, for or this past weekend, for example, I was in Great Falls uh, to visit my mom for Mother's Day. And I did updates to her routers uh, because I, when I got home, or I should say my parents' home, um, uh, I got a notification on my iPad because that's where I have the management software for my parents' routers saying they needed to be updated. And that's something I do for them. And I'm not entirely sure if I left that to my parents that that would get done with the urgency that I would do a router update. And, uh, you know, I think those are things to, to keep in mind. And I do think it, it, it feels 
it feels like a lot to manage and, and frankly it is a lot to manage but um you know versing yourself in some security basics and also being super sensitive about what you allow on your network i think is a really important part of being uh, safe and secure in 2023 let's just go ahead and do the third article then we'll do cover all the security uh this is kind of crazy this is from bloomberg i'm going to share uh, an archive.today link we've talked about this before Archive Today is a lovely caching site which allows you to take articles that are behind a paywall and just go ahead and access them uh, without logging in. Um, I don't think that sharing the link to that is violating any sort of laws or, you know, we're not doing anything illegal here. The headline is Hackers Contacted Cybersecurity Firm, CEO's Son and Wife in Extortion Attempt. Uh, we mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago. We've talked a lot about different security articles and identity theft. Uh, and you had mentioned, I think, Jason, you were, you were thinking about having a safe word uh, because we're mm -hmm. talking about AI and systems that can fake the voice of, of AI systems. I think we have an, an Apple um, article about some new technology that's coming out in iOS 17. And I'll just read the first couple paragraphs here. Hackers stole contracts from cybersecurity film firm Dragos as part of an extortion attempt that included contacting the chief executive officer's wife and five-year-old son, according to a company blog post. The firm didn't pay the hackers who gained access to internal documents after breaching personal email account of a newly hired Drago sales employee. Um, they are a s firm specializing, ironically, in cybersecurity services. As part of the extortion attempt, the hackers called Lee's son, again, he's five years old, on the phone. And it was the phone the child uses to communicate with his grandmother. The boy handed the phone to his mother who hung up, Lee said. The hackers called Lee's wife, in a separate call. So, you know, shortly after we moved to Charlotte, um, I actually did fall for uh, a phone call with somebody that was, should I admit this? Cause the AI is listening and recording this. <laughs> I mean, some, someone called and they said, Oh, if this is Amazon. Um, we're just calling because there's an unusual order. Did you just order, you know, $300 to be delivered in Dallas, Texas? I'm like, no. And folks, we need to rehearse this in advance. Agreed. If you're if you're getting a phone call that's unsolicited and it causes your blood pressure to rise, this is like the SIFT web literacy framework. Step one is to stop. And, you know, my best option right then would have been to stop, say, thank you very much. I'll be calling my bank and, you know, find out if it's if it's legitimate. You call the bank, you log into your Amazon or account or whatever it is. And so anyway, I thought this was a, a fairly extreme uh, case, but. Still, it shows how our personal information is really important, and this can affect children, grandchildren, spouses, grandparents, all of us. Yeah, and I would also note, too, that um, uh, there is already an extraordinary industry behind tricking people uh, and, and scamming them, right? And AI tools are just going to make that that much easier. And, um, you know, I know that very early on when generative AI became a – um, uh, uh, a bigger thing at the end of 2022, one of the use cases that I saw that it makes in a lot of sense is that we rely on a lot of hucksters in the world to be um, kind of stupid, right? And and not realize that, you know, that for whatever reason, that, that an easy uh, telltale sign is when someone's sending you a, a demanding um, letter to open up a past due notice and the English is 
is is is off or is in a in a pattern that's that's very strange or 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 unknown uh because that means it could be that that either this person doesn't speak english or english is not their first language but in an ai model world all they need to do is type uh, you know, really, um, uh, even a terrible email that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and say, smooth this over and make it more customer service friendly and chat GPT version two, uh, from, you know, years ago would probably make that, uh, uh, pretty viable. So yeah, we, uh, we have to be a little cynical here. Um, and I am hoping that, that there is a lot of, um, there is a, a, a lot of attention around how do we um, uh, try to provide more opportunities uh, 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 for folks to both uh, become more uh, trained about being cynical about this and also adding additional protections. Shout out to Peggy, who is in our chat room. Uh, glad you could join us, Peggy. I, yeah, I got the tweets off a little bit late today. And then we've also got another live viewer who very well could be my dad. And Jason, I uh, didn't let you know, but last week, my dad... Um, in advance of the graduation festivities for our daughter was in the Kansas city area with my sister. And um, they actually had our show up on the big television in the living room. So nice. that, may, that may be a first for the EdTech situation room. We're on the big screen, ladies and gentlemen. All right. So anything else you want to hit before we jive into the AI? Um, yeah. I want you to talk about the New York times article about the DNA being pulled from thin air. Okay. All right. Uh, I could have put this one under miscellaneous, but I went ahead and chose um, to put it under privacy. So uh, we have talked in the past about some different uh, biotech articles and things like that. Um, this is also, as we're doing with a lot of Washington Post and um, uh, New York Times articles, a gift link. So if you're not a subscriber, Never fear, you can click the link. That's why if you're in the chat, I'm putting the shortened link in there. Um, this is crazy. So we've all heard stories about crimes being solved, cold cases with DNA evidence. And some of these things are happening decades afterwards. And, and people are literally being you know put into prison for the remainder of their lives. Sometimes these people are like you know 70 years old or whatever, but the DNA evidence uh, is there and lawyers and, and courts and everything like that finally process this and they find, oh my gosh, we know, you know exactly who did this because of evidence. Well, environmental DNA research has been... Uh, experimenting with the sort of random pieces of DNA. It's called eDNA or environmental DNA. And at one point it was considered to just be trace amounts, all living things, leave them behind. You know, like the, I guess we're always shedding. We see our, our golden retrievers all the time, but like our skin we shed, but you know, fingerprint, there's like hair, um, maybe not a fingerprint, but like a, a piece of skin, hair, anything organic uh, that's, that's from your body, um, but even are out of our breath, I guess. And so um, they have uh, been able to use this environmental DNA to monitor wastewater systems, to monitor COVID and other pathogens. Um, they have rediscovered species that have been thought to be extinct. Um, but what they've also discovered, and I thought this this quote is kind of telling. I, I did a TEDx talk, by the way, called uh, Digital Citizenship in the Surveillance State. And at one time, uh, we, we were doing a lot of stuff about surveillance, kind of like AI. So this paragraph from the article, new DNA collecting techniques are, quote, like catnip for law enforcement officials, says Aaron Murphy, a law professor at New York 
University School of Law, who specializes in the use of new technologies in the criminal legal system. The police have been quick to embrace unproven tools like using DNA to create probability-based sketches of a suspect. We've talked about Clearview AI, which is this basically a legal tool that web scraped all these images from the web and will, you know, give from a surveillance camera uh, a guess of who that is. And, and that is being used by law by, you know, tons of law enforcement folks all over the place. Okay. The bottom line is you can now, I guess, pull enough DNA just from the room that in many cases you can identify who is in the room. And so they, um, these teams that have been uh, researching this, uh, okay, they scooped up a soda-sized can of water from a creek in St. Augustine, Florida. They fed the genetic material uh, into this nanopore sequencer. It costs about $1,000. It allows them to read larger stretches of DNA. It's the size of a cigarette lighter. plugs into a laptop like a flash drive. From the samples, the team recovered much more legible DNA than they had anticipated. Um, and as knowledge expands about human genetics, even these limited examples can reveal a wealth of information. Uh, mitochondrial DNA, this is crazy, Jason. It's passed directly from mother to child for thousands of generations. And so this is why there are folks, and I'm not, I have been known to wear a tinfoil hat on the show, but I'm not, I'm not in the complete, I'm, I'm paranoid about this, but in terms of DNA tests, you know, in the military, I guess everyone has a DNA test now and there's people who are dystopian and whatever that, that think, Hey, that, that that's what the government is trying to do is they're, you know, they're going to have all of our DNA and then we're going to get a, a stamp and, you know, it's going to be the end of the world. Um, if we have this, these kinds of DNA identifications, it doesn't just put a single individual at risk. It potentially, you know, puts an entire family because this is, again, mitochondrial DNA, and there's just a lot of implications to this. So more than likely, police organizations, uh, Homeland Security, maybe even the military, but anybody who's trying to track bad actors um, is going to be pretty interested in this because when it comes to surveillance of uh, different individuals, um, they're going to be able to use environmental DNA. And this really makes me think of science fiction, right? Where it's like they go in and then there's some sort of glasses they put on and they can see, oh, look, this is where Wes was. And then he sat in this chair and then he, you know, moved around and it's uh, a little dystopian. Yeah, it absolutely is. And the other thing I would just note here too, is that um, I just, it seems like a, it seems like a, you know, 10 years ago, we were mocking some of these, uh, crime, crime, uh, scene investigation shows, uh, because they seem to overplay uh, what the technology looked like. And little did we know that perhaps they knew, um, perhaps they knew more than <laughs> about what the future would look like. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that, um, I, I heard a, a podcast earlier today when I was out for my lunchtime, um, walk in in beautiful Missoula, and uh, they were talking to um, a uh, someone in their early twenties about how there just is no privacy left, and that while we can do things to protect it the best we can, you know, our privacy is is, is largely gone now. And um, uh, I think that exa examples like this, you know, help prove that we're constantly leaving a trail, whether it's physically or digitally. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight against that, but man, are the odds against us? And we just keep finding new, new ways to 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 make sure that that no one can truly be off the grid. My thought about that was we we just need to keep pushing back. Uh, there's a fantastic podcast interview um, which I don't have in the show, but I I tweeted it um, 
yesterday. It's an Ezra Klein interview with uh, sci-fi author Kim Stanley. And he talks in the, he t- they talk about all kinds of stuff in this podcast, but one of them is about climate change. Uh, and there are some real reasons to be optimistic, but basically we need to choose to be optimistic. If we choose to say game over, we can't do anything, you know, then it is over in terms of the fight for the planet with climate change. And I think the same thing is true with privacy. I think a good case can be made that almost all rights start with privacy. And so even though, and and I, and I do, I'm not joking about this. I, it, it feels a little creepy. We recognized this probably over a year ago when our words were being transcribed directly in on Facebook and then also on YouTube and realizing that anything we say, if we mention a certain providence in China or a certain subgroup that is basically, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the central authorities don't want you to talk about that. There, there's like he who shall not be named. There are these things that you can talk about that if you try to go through customs in a certain area, you know, you you may be on a no fly list literally because of, you know, things that you've said or you've done. Anyway, it feels weird to to know there's that kind of documentation because we're voluntarily doing this show and we're glad it's being recorded and we're putting it out there. But as I think maybe you mentioned last show or recently, Jason, we have so much. So we have so many hours of recorded audio of ourselves that our voices are going to be easy to spoof. And we may have some articles about that tonight with AI and these kinds of generative tools. Um, and so we do have much, much less privacy than we have had before. However, I would say we just have to keep pushing uh, for that. And, and again, I think we're going to need to push for privacy regulation. And I don't know if, I think we've got that article, that Sam Altman, he, he testified before Congress, you know, saying we need regulations on these systems. Um, he's not calling for privacy regulations per se, but I, I certainly think that is probably where we ought to start. And it is scary. It's dystopian, but at the same time, it's something that we need to continue to educate about. And I think to continue to advocate for, I couldn't agree more. Okay, Wes, is it rabbit hole time? It is. Where do you want to jump first? Well, I guess um, this is an announcement that happened over the weekend. I don't have an article to back it, although you might, but I just want to share some of my experiences here. Um, OpenAI opened up the browser to all users uh, that pay um, over this past weekend. And it's taken some time to roll out, and the tool was just available to me yesterday for the first time. But I now have access to the browser pl- the, the, the browser plugin in ChatGPT4. So I've been playing with it for the last 24 hours, and it's kind of a fascinating uh, tool. You're talking um, about like a Chrome extension that allows you to directly uh, access it? No, this is actually the 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 browser or it, it the ability to to surf the web uh, is directly plugged into ChatGPT four, so that's now available uh, to um, and you may have it right now, uh, Wes. You have to go into settings and beta features and turn it on, and it's called web browsing. Oh, and I just got plugins access too because that was uh, not available to me uh, earlier today. So um, so it's the most advanced feature, and it's really interesting because. Um, it does really change the chat GPT experience, but not in the way that I expected. And so I'll give you an example of this. 
Um, you know, one of the things that you may have heard us in the past uh, talking about is, you know, when we do a little what we used to be called uh, ego uh, Googling and is now, I guess, chat GPT uh, egoing. Um, but, you know, I said, write a biography of, of Jason Neifer. And um, it wrote a fairly accurate biography of me, including, you know, Dr. Jason Neifer was born in Great Falls, Montana, completes education in the same state. He attended Great Falls High School and then pursued higher education at Carroll College, Walden University, and the University of Montana and I began his career as a classroom teacher. He gained experience at two high schools, developing programs, history, geography, uh, debate, speech, newspaper production, and computer science. In 2010, he joined the Montana Digital Academy staff as his first assistant director. director, director. He's now the executive director of MTDA, leading a team of 150 teachers, deliver 120 courses uh, to students across Montana. Were you so, 1A or 2A? Uh, that was a 1A. So as it may be, be totally <laughs> clear, right? Um, so like, that's all accurate, but also I wrote most of that, right? Like that's a direct quotation from... Um, um, my uh, various biographies that I've posted across uh, the United, or across the interwebs. And um, uh, it noted that I am a previous political candidate. I ran for the uh, Democratic primary for lieutenant governor in Montana in 2008. Um, I also used to run a debate handbook company uh, with a good a friend of mine. Um, and, um, and then it also said, while Neifer's extensive career in education, his role at MTD are well documented, more recent information about his activities and achievements, as well as specific details about his educational qualifications are not immediately available due to limitations in accessing some online sources. Further research might provide additional insights into his current work and contributions to educational technology and online learning. So, um, so there's a couple of things that are really interesting about this. The first one is that it does cite a source every time. There's a little, um, uh, uh, there's a little, uh, a footnote that I can click on where it, it picked up all these resources. And although it wrote this from scratch, it borrows heavily from the sources that it gets it from. So in a way it's a more plagiarizing, I would say than, than um, uh, maybe the traditional large language model. The other thing I noticed when it asked for more information about my good buddy, Dr. Wes Fryer is that it did write um, a biography for you, sir. And it looks, you know, pretty darn accurate. Dr. Wesley Fryer, commonly known as Wes Fryer is a well-respected um, educator, author, digital storyteller, and speaker with a passion for media literacy and computer science. He began, he began his career teaching career in 1996 and is currently serving as the middle school uh, uh literacy robotics engineering and computer science teacher at province day school in charlotte north carolina his favorite question as a teacher is what do you want to create today um and his views uh, and and he views video as the pencil of the 21st century and i know you know that of you uh, that's a new that's from my new bio i mean that they they that's scraped yeah. directly from my website which is and, good i mean know, I, I want yeah, it to be that's west westfriar.com slash bio mm -hmm. um but i would also know too that i'm i go up here now um to it, it provides me a dialogue screen that tells me and it, it by the way it takes a while to do this it's not nearly as instantaneous as chat gpt4 and as as i know west knows chat gpt4 is really slow in comparison to chat gpt 3.5 it, it takes time for it to generate the text but what's interesting about this is that um so it tells me what it did it searched for west wesley fryer biography click failed click failed click failed clicked on Amazon. And so I'm assuming uh, that it's going to your author page on Amazon, which is exactly the case, right? So um, that's what it's doing there. Going back to last page, clicked on, it went to your web page, reading content, search for Wesley Fryer updates 2023 onwards, click failed, click failed, 
clicked on speedcreativity.org slash about, going back to the last page, click failed, back to speed, uh, create, speed creativity, and then search for Wesley Fryer books, click failed, click failed, finish browsing, writes your bio, right? And this is all sorts of- So it's of basically code. like a log showing you kind exactly. of where it's, where it's querying. Uh, by the way, it also notes that you like exploring the great outdoors and that you're an advocate backyard barbecue enthusiast. Uh, with a particular specialty in Texas-style brisket. He shares photos, videos, and recipes on YouTube, his cooking blog, Instagram, and TikTok. So um, uh, very cool, but I went to dig a little more on the internet about why all this clicking was failing, and that is because um, a lot of people are using the robots.txt, uh, which is a, a feature of websites that tells automated systems like ChatGPT or the Google bot for that matter, that I don't want you sniffing around this website. And that's kind of a, a um, an agreement that most people follow, most bots follow, uh, that if, if, if a website tells a bot not to do something, then it won't do it. And so the reason why um, um, uh, this is so interesting to me is that uh, you know, I, I know why a lot of websites have, have, have stopped giving access to ChatGPT, and that's because they don't want their large language model to be um, uh, to be um, trained on their data, right? A lot of people have expressed anger that uh, you know their website was was uh, used by ChatGPT to train the model, and they felt like they should have been compensated for it, and they were not. But the reason why that's super interesting to me is that you know it might ultimately diminish the impact of ChatGPT as web browsing if sites decide it's not going to allow the large language model to surf. Whereas in most cases, I think a lot of people would assume not giving access to Google, like i.e. Google Bard, their chat model would be pretty silly in light of the fact of how much traffic could be driven by Google. So I'll just start off there and then uh, thoughts, sir. Okay, so first thought is this is why it's great to have a digital footprint, right? Because we have, to, I mean, for quite a while, people have talked about this. It's a good thing to have a website. You plant your flag. You say, you know, this is who I am. This, these are where you can link to me. This is where I share information. Um, how are you going to train the machine? If you do not have a place online where you're providing an about page, then when folks are Googling for you, and this has been an issue with, with just Google and other search engines too, uh, it's helpful to go ahead and try and, and, and craft and have some management over that. Sometimes your name is common and you know it's not going to be unique. But anyway, that's the first thought. The second thought is, I think that this is still being rushed. The article that I put into the, the, um, the chat is uh, from decrypt.co. ChatGPT adds web browsing feature to rival Google Bard and Microsoft Bing. Um, because of course those tools are integrating, you know, live search. And so it just, again, seems like the velocity of these systems and, you know, how, how long ago was it, Jason, that we were talking about Googling ourselves and laughing at, Oh, ha, ha, it thinks I went to the university of Montana for my PhD yep. and these other, you know, kinds of errors. I mean, we're using the worst versions of this that we're going to see. And so anyway, that's, Wow. Yep. So I, I just thought I'd share that. I just got access to plugins like literally this evening. So I have not played around with that yet. Uh, that will be something that I definitely uh, will spend some time on. Um, but I'll report back as I play with the tool. Have you disabled the saving the history or not? 
I have not at this point. Yeah, and I so, haven't either. I, 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 I want it, you know, because I think I want to be able to refer back to what I've done before. Um, I mean, I, I've got several things that I need to blog. And what are your reasons for keeping it? Um, I do like looking back in the past. Um, I and 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 part of it too is that I, you know, I did do a, a, a I didn't look through everything I've done on ChatGPT, but I did look to see if anything was truly embarrassing. And I have pushed the envelope a little bit to try to see if I couldn't get ChatGPT to do something naughty, right? So, but nothing red, that, red I, teaming. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, so you know that from that standpoint, um, I'm not uh, I'm not all that worried about it, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting tool. And, um, I, again, we're just scratching the surface here, but, um, I think the internet connection to this opens up a lot of interesting rabbit holes. So I'm going to tell a quick story. And then I say we jump into the articles, kind of quick hits to get through. Cause there's like 20 of them. We've got like 15 minutes. Uh, okay. Here's a link. This is my chat GPT powered JavaScript program of the day. This is the second program that I have written with the help of chat GPT for, um, we've been doing our culminating videos for our SIFT web literacy. We call it Fruit Loop Conspiracy Theories Unit. Uh, kids have made these videos. And where I was using the Wheel of Names today, and we would spin, and we only watched maybe three, three to five uh, videos per class. Well, I want to allow students to, to get an audience for, for, all their, for, e for each person to have an audience for their video. And so this is what I told ChatGPT. I want a JavaScript program that can randomly assign my kids into groups of two or three. That's not a big deal. You can do that on a regular website. But then I'm going to provide you with names of students uh, who have, have made videos that we haven't reviewed yet. And I want you to make sure that no student is reviewing their own video. Go. You took two iterations. That link that I put into the chat, I, it calls a JavaScript library. Um, and I had to update, I had to upload this to my web server. This would not run as a script on Google sites like the one that I did. I talked about a few weeks ago, I think with a random uh, image generator using a folder of, of images on, on Google Drive. But this is awesome. And this didn't save me two hours of work, but that's really cool. And being able to descriptively articulate exactly what I want this program to do. And then I said, I want it outputted in three columns. Uh, first column is group number. Second column is uh, students in the group. Uh, third column is videos that they're going to do. Copy and paste. It's in a spreadsheet. I shared it. I'm using it tomorrow. So it is, it's going to be very exciting for me personally to teach this intermediate coding class for our middle school next year for sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, because I don't think we're going to have a prohibition at our school, but we haven't navigated this yet. Right now, ChatGPT is just open for, for teachers to experiment with. Uh, but for students, there's not a here, use ChatGPT now sort of directive. I think that we are going to not, you know, of course, get fundamentals of, of HTML and, uh, and, and what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG web editing. But I think that I'm going to have my kids, if not doing it themselves, if they're not old enough, because I think you still do have to be 13, maybe giving me prompts, but this kind of capability is absolutely stunning. And again, this is different than creative writing because these are actual programs and scripts that run. So yeah, Peggy, that, that link is right. So, uh, but you, you put in the kids' names. So if you just make up a bunch of kids' names and, and chain and have uh, line breaks and then put in a, a series of, of other names or videos, then it's going to spit out 
the data in a column that you can just three columns that you can copy and paste. Anyway, I was again dancing a happy dance today at our faculty meeting and people were like, what are you excited about? And then other people started telling me stories about their chat GPT uses, like our Chinese teacher who's taken vocabulary from the last unit, putting it together with this unit, you know, creating a dialogue, just doing awesome instructional materials that it's creating in Chinese. So. Yep, absolutely. Okay, let's do uh, some of these articles uh, sort of rapid style. Um, I want to go down to Sam Altman. He testified before Congress yesterday, um, and <laughs> I think I got this article in there. Um, he's saying that we need to uh, we need to regulate. So um, I said this, and I can't find it. No, oh, there it is. Uh, this is Ars Technica from yesterday. AI technology can go quite wrong. OpenAI CEO tells Senate, okay, when have we had a billionaire before Congress saying, please regulate me and please regulate my industry? Has that ever happened? I don't think that it has. Usually folks that are in business don't want government to get in the way and to regulate them. But he's saying that we need to have regulation. And the analogy I've started to use is like an airplane if you or I had enough money, we could go buy an airplane, but we would not be able to legally fly it until we had received a license from the FCC and we had gone through a pretty extensive licensing program to verify that we could safely operate the plane. And that is basically what Altman is saying is that we need to have some kind of licensing, particularly um, when it comes to the biotech. Um, he says that licenses could be required again, for regulation, for AI models that, quote, can persuade, manipulate, influence a person's behavior, person's beliefs, or, quote, help create novel biological agents. It's coming, wow. folks. It's coming. Yeah. And I, so I've seen a lot of the um, um, I've seen a lot of this uh, uh, coverage uh, or, or coverage on this today. And my understanding is that the Mr. Altman was 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 quite quite engaging in front of that congressional committee today. And in fact, every time I've heard him speak, uh, not obviously live, um, I've been also uh, uh, pretty impressed with his um, uh, kind of articulate views on on where we need to go with this. But just remember, you know, he's the gentleman that that has led the charge to pull off most of the large language models, and he's telling you. We need to regulate this, right? And I also heard a quotation too um, that said that his team is already, you know, uh, has lists available that, that that they would happily send to any member of Congress of where we need to start with this. I'm of course very concerned. Congress is still fumbling around. I almost said a bad word there. Um, uh, uh, fumbling around with. Um, um, with social media, like there's been no meaningful regulation, despite, you know, now nearly uh, eight years of hot air um, from 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 Congress to do this. But I happen to agree with Mr. Altman that that uh, we're going to have to do something um, about this pretty darn quick. And this technology is really never there's just never been anything like it that that it's, it's in my mind, it's, it's like handing uh, you know nuclear fusion to, to 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 third graders. And we're not really. We're not really doing anything about it at this point. The thing that's different in a regulatory sense is that the companies like Facebook and Google and others that need to be regulated as social media companies have not been advocates, certainly not strong advocates for regulation. And because you know Sam is saying this along with Bill Gates and a lot of other, you know, uh, Schmidt from from Google, 
you know, I, I think that there is a possibility that we'll have some regulation for this. Peggy's commenting. It's funny to see snow in the background. It's 102 degrees Fahrenheit. In Fahrenheit. <laughs> it's yeah. like 70. No, it's 69 now. It was like 77 today. So this is just my aspirational cabin that we're in. All right. How about another AI article, Dr. Neifer? Sure. Um, this one, um, I've been getting a lot of interesting articles from uh, The Byte, which is on thefuturist.com. Um, Amazon is being flooded with books that have been written entirely by AI. And they cite a Washington Post article. Um, but basically, um, um, uh, AI-generated books are starting to become... Um, uh, uh, kind of the norm um, on on new book releases on Amazon. And what's interesting about that, and of course, why are you making me sign in? Because I have an account in the Washington Post. Um, but the um, the idea here is that that um, um, there is uh, uh, an awful lot of, of going to the Washington Post article, an awful lot of new books that are, are written, uh, obviously written entirely by AI. And what's also interesting too, is that um, a lot of these are niche books. In other words, these are not like mainstream. There's a, there's a ton of self-published science fiction on Amazon. Some of that um, from self-published writers. Also, I remember this from early in the, the, the Kindle self-publishing days that there's a lot of, of, of prominent science fiction writers from the 1960s and 70s that owned all the digital rights to their materials because they only did a single edition of 500 copies of their book and kept all their digital rights um, and were able to make a, a pretty penny by selling uh, their books um, on, on Amazon and the Kindle service. But, um, you know, there is um, a ton of, of uh, uh, new books that are coming up in some cases very 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 um, narrow um, uh, 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 niche areas that they're doing this with and then um, that same Washington Post article and also the Byte article talks about um, a NewsGuard report which is a news uh, uh, rating or news, uh, news credibility rating company in fact I never heard of that before so I've bookmarked that to go back to that in the future um, that uh, there are now 49 news web websites across seven languages that appear to be mostly or entirely uh, uh, written by AI. And they include um, uh, site names like, and one of them is Biz Breaking News. So just going to that website right now. Um, of course, it's not in the top of, of, of Google search uh, results. So maybe that tells you something right there. Here I have a domain name, bestbudgetusa.com, which actually kind of sounds like a bad site to start with, right? Um, I've got domain names I could sell these folks. but um, And of course, the site is now down, maybe because it's been discovered as all AI generated. But, you know, that that's a really, you know, very real thing here that, that's going on. And we have to, um, it, you know, we, we have an election coming up. Right. And we've we reported a couple weeks back. This is already being utilized in commercials um, and in spots uh, by this. The first one was from the RNC uh, regarding a, a potential Biden reelection. And, you know, it, it it was obviously fake because it was trying to purport what would happen um, on the first day of a second term of a Biden presidency. And we know that hasn't happened yet. But, um, you know, the video realism of the photos and, and the videos that can be generated by these generative AI tools certainly should be sounding some alarm bells for those that are interested in questions of media literacy. Got to have more media literacy in schools, folks. And this is just the tip of the iceberg because this is just this is just going to get worse. Um, here's a, an article that follows up, I think, on one that we talked about uh, last week. We mentioned this. 
very popular TikTok influencer that had created this app. I think she was making like $70,000 a day or something like that. Um, and so this is from Insider on May 11th. Influencer who created AI version of herself says it's gone rogue and she's working around the clock to stop it from saying sexually explicit things. Now, was this my original design? How much money is this generating for her now? Um, I think she charges a dollar a minute or something like that. Uh, this is Karen Marjorie. Um, a voice-based chatbot. Uh, it engages in sexually explicit conversations with subscribers. And she claims that her team is working around the clock to stop this. Now, I don't know if we talked about this. I think we did briefly last week. Um, there are these AI companions, Replica, K-A mm -hmm. is one of the examples. And I've seen um, some articles and videos about this. I'm not downloading that and, and trying that. But some of our kids are believe yes. it or not. And if you don't have controls, parental, some parental controls over the app store for your own children or grandchildren, or you have children and, you know, talk about this. Okay. Because having unfettered access to the app store to install anything that you want um, can mean now you have access to a sexually explicit chatbot. So um, the replica allows people to, you know, have romantic relationships and explicit relationships with their AI chatbot um so there's that uh, uh by see. the way um i i uh have heard secondhand that that a lot of middle school teachers are are, are discovering that their middle schoolers are really jumping in all over this and so i have um replica installed in fact you know here is my replica right now that i've been chatting back and forth with and it's really interesting because it does really try to it tr try to create a personal connection with you and there are some kind of pre-fed in prompts and one of them is do you want your uh, replicant i think is the the appropriate term your replicant to, to send you a selfie so it's like well okay go ahead and it's like well what kind of selfie do you want do you want a regular selfie do you want a romantic selfie and i was like no this is already getting kind of weird but like i and again i, I can see so many scenarios where that kind of technology can use for a positive good but not in the dark, right? Like we have to to start having these conversations um, uh, much more uh, uh, openly, and you know, help kids understand. Like you know, there there is plenty of evidence to suggest that when everything is customized to someone, that creates some really bizarre uh, assumptions from a human standpoint. Imagine if that's a hundred percent of your interactions is completely customized to your to your um, thoughts, needs, and desires too. And I think that's a, a, a something we have to be extremely cautious about. And think about who controls that, right? Yeah. Because who's going to control those replicas, the information that's fed? There's a service called the Spinner that is a commercial service that you can use to try to hack your 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 real life romantic partner or whoever you want to, and then feed them messages to try and get them. The, the example is to get them to try to propose. But like this is why Sam Altman is talking about we need some regulation because if AIs are specifically geared or can you know influence or persuade it is the complete wild west. And at my previous school, I would have periodically the opportunity to lead some parent universities, we called them, which oftentimes were conversations with students as well as parents about digital technologies. Uh, we did a variety of different things. I think, I think I may just on my own do one that's going to be about AI personal assistance, because again, this is one of those things that parents need to be aware of, need to be in conversation about. And no matter how much education we try to do, there's going to be a lot of parents and a lot of kids that are not going to know about this. 
And we're, isn't it crazy? We live in this day where literally, and I'm not even going to say what it was, but there was a horrible, horrific video that one of my wife's fifth grade students uh, was playing on her Chromebook the other day and told that to someone else. And then they Googled it and then they saw it like literally by just saying these words here, look for this, download this app, look for this video. Uh, it's a seek and find world. And so part of what we need to do is in addition to encouraging conversations, we need to help encourage kids to make careful choices about the things that they choose to see. This is really hard to do with, with middle school and high school students that, you know, haven't, fully developed executive function, especially yes. males. Um, a couple ones real quick about Sam Altman. So I think that probably Sam Altman is going, is already playing a hugely important role uh, in our society at the level of, you know, um, uh, you know, it, it's Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, Tim Cook, you know, CEOs for, for Amazon, Apple, uh, these kinds of folks. So uh, a couple articles. This one is from Insider on May 1st. Can you see that I spent a little time on Ars Technica and business, <laughs> I guess it's Business Insider. And the headline here is a bit of a, of a clickbait, but this is a very well-written article that basically has headlines and then citation, headlines, picture, citation, headlines, picture, citation. But it's like a timeline. Um, the headline is meet OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, who learned to code at eight and is a doomsday prepper with a stash of gold guns and gas masks. And actually, I think there's probably a lot of Silicon Valley folks that that are preppers. Um, but this is number one. This is a very well-written article for the too long did not read generation um, because it doesn't have a large body of text. It's just like I said, sort of header image, a little bit more text. And then there's the source. So I think I think as an article written sort of from a journalistic standpoint or from a, a media literacy standpoint, it's a, it's a well-written article and it, and, a, and it gives a pretty good overview um, of, of where he's come from and what he's done. But then a little bit older article uh, from 2016 is super interesting. And again, I have the archive.today link because this is from the New Yorker. And depending on how many New Yorker links you've clicked on, you may or may not still have free articles. Uh, this is from October of 2016. Um, by Tad Friend, and it's called Sam Altman's Manifest Destiny. Uh, but this is telling the story of kind of where he came from through Y Combinator, how he's just, you know, totally the sort of the quintessential uh, Valley startup, um, you know, person. And anyway, just I think pretty, he's a pretty important person to know about. And I think that the influence which he's already casting on our society is massive. And from what I'm seeing, it's just going to continue to increase. Extraordinary. Well, let me do a, one other article here, and I think we are, yeah, we're just a couple minutes from 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 sixty minutes here. Um, really interesting article from Slate, and the way this was introduced, I believe that the author um, might be a professor on a college campus, but this is from their uh, Future Tense uh, um, a series at Slate, and it basically says. Professor, professors are grappling with an excruciating assignment. Catching essays isn't it. It's helping students navigate the technological change uh, is, is the bigger challenge. And I think if anything, this is what I think is 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 probably uh, uh, summarizes where I'm at right now with this stuff. I mean, obviously I'm a nerd, so I know breaking news: Jason Knifer's a nerd. But <laughs> yeah, um, so I. I, I Yes, I'm into this stuff. Yes, it's super interesting to me. Yes, it's an extraordinary evolution of, of these tools. And yes, um, I've been playing with them a lot in the last six months. But 
the bottom line is that I'm also extremely concerned about how education survives um, this challenge. And it's not just because of plagiarism. That's just such a simple way to look at this that I think it's a lot more complex than that. It is really a lot more about, um, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, it's really a lot more about how, how do we help students accept this in, 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 I, and I don't, necessarily think we did a super great job broadly or broadly speaking in helping students embrace the internet in, in a positive way in the last 25 years in classrooms. And I think that, that, um, generative AI will be just that much more hardcore in, in, in trying to figure out a way to deal with this. And so, um, uh, a really great essay that, that talks about the struggles and what uh, classroom teaching looks like um, under this and, and how challenging it's going to be, um, but also that we need to have start having these conversations now um, uh, 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 and, and not forget that, uh, and this is a great quotation um, from the, that the author uh, cites from a New Yorker article with ethnicist Jaron Lanier, the most pragmatic position uh, is to think of AI as a tool, not a creature. When we remember this, that we have created these, uh, these technologies as tools, we're empowered to remember that we have the ability to shape their use. Practically speaking, I'm treating, G this is the author again, GPT like a calculator. Most of us use calculators in math class and still didn't get perfect grades. After discovering my first chat GPT essay, I decided that going forward, students can use generative AI in assignments so long as they disclose how and why. I'm hoping that this will lead to less... Uh, banging my head against the kitchen table and at, at, at and it's and it and it's best be its own kind of lesson and that's where i'm leaning towards this right like um uh you know i think we need to be ultra careful with k-12 students uh for a variety of reasons but also we need to find out if you know we need to at least create an open atmosphere where students can talk about this with with teachers and if it's not the right move to utilize a generative ai tool we need to be prepared to have that conversation beyond saying i told you so it it, it has to be a, a more proactive discussion than that we definitely need to respect terms of service and if kids are under 13 as many of my middle schoolers are you know that's that's going to be a non-starter uh in terms of them you know actually using it but i think um you know, this makes me wonder whether or not I need to be proposing right now to my administration um, a mandatory media literacy class. You know, I, I think that all, all the kids should take my class. And of course, as teachers, we're always biased. But, you know, the things that I'm teaching about the SIFT web literacy framework and how we're going to, to handle sources that we haven't encountered before and how, you know, how we read laterally, these are skills everyone needs. And so that's got me thinking about that. Um, here's a bite futurism article uh, from May 16th, newspaper apologizes for accidentally running deranged AI generated article. So someone who's basically a troll um, sent in a opinion piece to the Irish times. And they said that they were basically trying to, you know, <laughs> I won't, I won't quote what, what they said they were trying to do. They were, they were trying to mess with people basically uh, in a culture war way. And so this really weird article um, turns out to be an AI hoax. The author themselves took to Twitter from an account that they had a fake name. And, and anyway, this is how it came out. And people are accusing him of being an alt-right troll. But, but the, the bottom line is this was an AI-generated opinion piece. And, you know, the, the Irish Times was not able to identify that and, you know, has been a little embarrassed that they've done that. But welcome to the future, ladies and gentlemen. 
um, because it is extremely hard and it's going to be just about impossible to determine at least for the tools that we have now. And this is going to also talk about anonymity and how we authenticate and how do we, we prove you know, who we are. I'm thinking that Amazon and, and other publishers are going to have to look at their gatekeeping, their gatekeeping procedures, you know, for, um, for publishing and for things like that. So this is, this is not only challenging the velocity with which this change is happening, which goes to your article that you just shared, Jason, about trying to, help students grapple with how fast things are changing, but also ourselves as educators. Um, we need time to process this. So if you don't have some time in your upcoming professional development for back to school in August or September, whenever you go back to school, I absolutely think that AI and these tools need to be part of the conversation and more than just, we're going to ban them and prohibit kids or teachers or anybody from using them. Because if that's all you're saying about it, you know, I think you are not, on the right Mardi Gras float with this. I think we've got to find ways to embrace and work with these tools, but we've also got to figure out, you know, what are going to be the appropriate times and ways to use them. Um, and then what are going to be the times that we're not. And to that point about the essays, I think we're going to have to become more performative. You know, Jason and I are biased towards com competitive CX debate because we did it for years. Jason did it a lot longer than I did. You really can't fake a CX debate. You know, you can have all the information you want at your fingertips, but can you use it? Can you respond to people? Can you articulate? Can you explain? I think that those are the are some of the assessments that we're going to need to be doing instead of just, you know, turn in your essay that you've somehow generated. Yep, I cannot agree more. Okay, I think we've gone over the top of the hour. Yep, I think we have too. So, um, Wes, please share your geek of the week. Okay, uh, I'm going to do three quickly, but I won't talk about them long. Um, I wrote a pretty geeky article. I've like blogged three times in the last week. It's shocking. Uh, but this is called Disruptive Decentralization in Social Media and AI. Um, there is a fantastic article that I highly commend um, that talks about just all the different issues. It's called Google I.O. and the Coming AI Battles. And I think I included it in the show notes. But anyway, this is a blog post that I wrote about it. There's, there's this, there are pros and cons to both centralized, like think Twitter, and then decentralized, uh, think Mastodon, Blue Sky. And then when it comes to AI, we've got centralized, open AI, Microsoft, uh, these big tech companies. And then we've got diffu you know, stable diffusion, which is open source, give it out to the world. And so there's a lot of issues uh, there. Um, I've been on Blue Sky for about a week now, and I've got a Mastodon post showing the default moderation uh, options. And so by default, your your Blue Sky account uh, hides sexually explicit images, other nudity, sexually suggestive things, violent and bloody things, and political hate groups. Uh, well, actually, yeah, uh, political hate groups and spam. And then I think you have to decide whether impersonation accounts are hidden or you're just warned about those. And it also allows you to subscribe to block lists from other organizations if, if you trust them and you want to block them. So I think that's a, a good step in the right direction. And on a purely geeky note, uh, thanks to our IT department that's helping us get ready to transition to Canvas as our new LMS learning management system uh, this next year and this summer, I learned about this website, takeascreenshot.org. It's actually take-a-screenshot.org and it'll automatically detect whatever platform you're using and tell you how to create a screenshot on that platform. And I think that's a pretty good media literacy skill and that's a handy little link to be able to share with students, parents, or anybody else. Well, I don't have nearly as cool of one, but it is an AI-based tool, but I was kind of amused by it, so I thought I would share it tonight. This is videotorecipe.com. It is a pay-for site, but I've used it for free in a 
um, uh, in, in, a, in an incognito window, and it seems to do just fine. Just you know, uh, providing a, a written recipe. Basically, you 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 copy and paste a YouTube video, cooking video demonstration. It watches the video for you, or I would imagine takes a transcript and then writes out a recipe for you. So I I cook a lot. Uh, my wife and I just uh, invested. Uh, all the money we didn't spend traveling during COVID into redoing our kitchen from scratch. And so we've been uh, kind of having a renaissance of cooking in our kitchen. And um, sometimes, well, I like watching YouTube for new recipes, but sometimes I don't want to sit down and write all the information. So you put the YouTube video in there, you press get the recipe. It takes, I don't know, two, three minutes, but it essentially creates an ingredients list for you and a list of steps um, in, in, in the style of a recipe. So if you watch the video and you don't want to watch it again to get all the information, uh, video to recipe.com will do that for you. And, um, uh, uh, there is a, um, there's a free version. Uh, you can do up to three recipes a month, although you don't have to log in. Um, the videos can be up to 10 minutes long. Um, and again, it's just three per month for that. I don't do enough cooking on YouTube to to make it worth spending nine dollars a month, which seems shocking to me to pay that much for that that information. Um, but super cool, and I did like the whole uh, I like the whole vibe of the site. It's simple and and does a good job at what it does. Let me suggest to you and all of us that you probably can take the transcript from a video that you can download for free, and oh, yeah. if you parse that into ChatGPT four it will probably do this because that's probably what this thing does is it's a custom engineered prompt script for chat GPT. But I had not thought of this before. And literally tonight I, I cooked a, a stir fry uh, with sausage um, and I have a food blog. And anyway, the thought of, <laughs> Hey, I could just record a video and now I can tell chat GPT, can you please give me the recipe for that? Wow. In my dreams, I'll teach a cooking class at school and we'll learn to be, you know, chef YouTubers. I might do that as a summer. Yeah, by the way, I now have ChatGPT up and I just took a transcript from a Chef John video. And I'm going to say, please write a recipe based on this YouTube, YouTube cooking channel transcript. Go. And let's see here. How will you get the transcript though in, in pieces? Do you have to use a text uh, parser to, to separate it into blocks or how uh, do you do that? Well, no, because I have a plugin uh, that is glass G L A S P that actually takes a, or takes the transcript and puts it in just one location. Um, so I can easily copy and paste it. What's it called? And oh my god, it does exactly that, Wes. It 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 works just fine. A glad G L A S P dot C O. G L A S P glass. Yep. Okay. Social web YouTube, highlight. It's called YouTube Summarizer. Okay. And it's also cool because it plugs right in ChatGPT, so you can just press a button on the YouTube page, and it will it will write a summary of any video based on the transcript, and that itself is super cool. But um, yeah, I just did exactly that, and it and it did it did exactly what you said, Wes. So don't don't pay nine dollars a month. Just copy and paste the transcript, and um, here it if is. If you're if yeah, if you're already paying twenty dollars a month for ChatGPT, because as yes. we talked about, it's you know figuring out what it's going to be worth paying. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. He said he only had two geeks a week, and he has two. So there's the link to Glass Social Web Highlight and YouTube Summary. Yep, there it is. Ah, uh, yet again, sir, an energizing. <laughs> 
70 minutes to spend with you this Wednesday night. So Dr. Fryer, where, where can people find you on the interwebs? I have all of my links at westfriar.com slash after, but I'm still on Twitter and I'm actually now cross posting to about six different social networks. Um, but all my links are on westfriar.com slash after. How about you? Uh, best place to find me is still right now, Twitter, uh, uh, twitter.com slash techsavvyteach. And we didn't get to the article this week, but 60% of Twitter users have said in the last 12 months, they've taken a break from the website, which is maybe all the information you need to know. Hey, this isn't Twitter. It's the EdTech Situation Room. We're a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC, if you are so inclined to join us um, from Western Europe. If you can't join us live, although I wish you'd join Peg in the audience and do so, please download our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Go to our website, edtechsr.com. Go to our YouTube channel or Facebook page where we're able to see all past episodes and see what, what EdTech News was like you know, six years ago when we started this podcast. We hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.